evidence and answers. Is the Earth billions of years old? Or is it 6,000 years old? The age of the Earth has unfortunately been a very divisive issue among Christians. At the 2023 Evidence and Answers Conference, our speakers from both views engaged in a lively discussion on this issue. Join us today as our panel of scholars discuss the issue of the Bible, science, and the age of the earth. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. We will be continuing on with a panel discussion taken from our 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christian scientists and speakers from across the country. Remember, if you miss any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and look up the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. You'll see all of the messages displayed. Now, let's get right to part two of our panel discussion on the age of the earth. So the buildup of land masses is actually slightly greater than the decay rate as a result of erosion. What was number five? Helium and old zircons. Oh yeah, helium. Okay, I've worked with helium as a physicist. It's the slipperiest of all the elements in the periodic table. You just can't contain it. Lead, on the other hand, is really heavy and very stable. And so no physicist would ever use the quantity of helium in any sample as an age indicator. It just slips around, moves in and out so easily. The lead, however, is stable. It's not going to be moving. And so how we date samples is that you've got uranium-238, uranium-235, thorium-232, and they decay into three different isotopes of lead. So uranium-232 decays into lead-208, uranium-235 into 207. From his thorium, that makes 208. Uranium-235, 207. Uranium-238 makes 206. So what physicists do is they will take a sample, they ignore the helium, because that just moves in and out so easily that it's a useless dating tool. And they look at the three isotopes of lead, thorium-232, uranium-235, uranium-238, and they wind up with six independent radiometric tools to date the sample. And we know we're dealing with a pure sample if all six methods give the identical age. And it's through this technique that physicists have been able to date the Earth with high precision. Using those six methods, we get a date for the age of the Earth, 4.5662 billion years, plus or minus 0.0001 billion. We actually have it nailed down to five places of the decimal. Now, one gas we can use to get a rough estimate of age is argon. Unlike helium, argon is heavy. Uh, it also is a little bit slippery, but nothing like helium. And so, for example, you've got potassium on the moon that's decaying into argon. Potassium-40 decays into argon. And so, on the moon, we say it has no atmosphere. Not true. It's got a thin argon atmosphere. And by measuring in the argon comes 100% from potassium decay. So by looking at the quantity of argon in the atmosphere of the moon, we can date the moon, and the moon's age comes in at 4.45 billion, which is what caused astronomers to recognize the moon is slightly younger than the Earth. There must have been an event uh, whereby the moon formed after the Earth, 
I've got a couple of chapters on that in some of my books. Two planets, our solar system began with five rocky planets. Two of them collided with one another when the Earth was about 90 million years old, and that led to the formation of the Moon and the argon quantity of the Moon. And by the way, Earth's atmosphere is 1% argon. All of that argon came from potassium decay, and the amount of argon in our atmosphere is consistent with the Earth being 4.5662 billion years. What I'd like to say is that what you'll see, you mentioned the Institute of Creation Research. Their most definitive scientific defense of uh, a, a young Earth was the rate study. Two volumes, I own the two volumes, they're big, thick books. But in those books, they repeatedly make the concession that if there is no radiometric variation, the radiometric decay rates, if the laws of physics never change, then the Earth and the universe must be billions of years old. And what I find interesting about that is the Bible repeatedly tells us that there's been no change in the laws of physics. So the leading scientists at the Institute of Creation Research and at Answers of Genesis are in public written record that if the laws of physics don't change, the Earth and the universe must be billions of years old. And the Bible explicitly tells us there's been no change in the laws of physics. There will be no change, Romans 8.23, until the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have in fact been redeemed. I'll be speaking about that later today, is that once that full number has been reached, uh, God no longer needs the laws of physics. Those laws of physics are in place to eradicate evil. And when evil is eradicated, God's going to replace this universe with its laws of physics with brand new laws. But as long as evil is here, the laws of physics must remain constant. And the laws of physics are constant. The earth and the universe must be billions of years old from the very writings of young earth creationists as scientists. As an astronomer, I can tell you that our measurements tell us there's been no change in the laws of physics. So, for example, when we measure the spectra of the sun, that tells us what the laws of physics were eight minutes ago, because it took the light eight minutes to reach our telescopes. And so we measure the laws of physics right now and eight minutes ago. We can do that with the Andromeda galaxy. Uh, we can do that with a large Magellanic cloud. With a large Magellanic cloud, we're measuring the laws of physics 163,000 years ago, because that's how long it took the light to reach our telescope. Bottom line is this, all the stars and galaxies we observe, all the way out to 13 billion light years, tell us that the laws of physics have not changed. Matter of fact, they tell us that the laws of physics have not changed by any degree greater than one part in 10 to the 18th uh, per year. So with extremely high precision, we astronomers and physicists can confirm that the Bible got it right. Thousands of years ago, the Bible said, no change in the laws of physics. Our measurements of stars and galaxies tell us the Bible got it right. And that's kind of a core feature of reasons to believe, is that we look at the scientific uh, literature and discoveries and say, okay, does this demonstrate that the Bible has predictive power? And it does it in spades. Thousands of years ago, the Bible predicted hundreds of future scientific discoveries. And that was a huge factor in my coming to faith in Christ, realizing the Bible got all the history right, it got all the science right, it predicted future historical events, it predicted future scientific discoveries, and never made a mistake. That means it couldn't have come from a human being. 
It must have come from the one that actually did the deed. Yes. So how do we account for, it looks like the universe is pretty old. How do we account for that from the young Earth perspective? Well, first of all, if you get nothing else out of this, we learned the, the word sinusoidally. I just think that's a cool word. Oh. They're, they're, yeah, I'm going to add that, that to my... That, that's basic trigonometry. You well, got yeah. that in high school, right? <laughs> I, I wasn't there the day they taught trigonometry in trigonometry <laughs> class, so I, I miss that. <laughs> so uh, another tendency I have as a, as a young earther is more and more, especially over the past few years, to be willing to grant... Now, Evan may disagree with me about this, but this may be an expression more that he's trained scientifically. I'm a philosopher, which that may excuse a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I was going to ask you when you were talking about the decay of this element into that, and whether that was going to be on the test later. I didn't, didn't know. <laughs> so I'm like, do I need to know this? But the tendency that I've been trending towards the past few years, and again, this would make me sort of outside the kind of consensus of young earth creationists with whom I'm familiar, is that perhaps it is the case that the science does say that the universe is old. And so you go, okay, well, if the science does seem to indicate that, sort of like what your reference to the ICR material, then why would one opt for a young earth creationism? And two things. One, it's a matter of me being more comfortable with how I understand the Bible than being comfortable with how I understand or don't understand the science. So unless I could be comfortable with a principle of hermeneutics that would allow me to comfortably embrace an old earth given how I understand genealogies, and then the days of Genesis. Unless I could be comfortable with the hermeneutic that lets me do that, then I would opt for a young earth, even acknowledging that the science seems to go against that. The second thing is, then I think it would be analogous to how Christians must have been behaving however many hundreds of years ago, let's say 150, where the consensus among many scientists, and Dr. Ross can correct me if I've got a wrong characterization of the science that long ago, that the universe was eternal, a sort of steady state. So what did Christians do when the science seemed to indicate the universe was eternal, that, or at least the scientists seemed to indicate that? Yet, I think most Christians probably felt like, well, it doesn't seem like the Bible says that. So of the two, I'm just going to bite the bullet and go, the scientists... I can't answer their arguments, but I'm more comfortable with how I understand the scriptures than how I understand the science and just leave it at that. And then, of course, I would leave it at that. I wouldn't want it to be left at that among the scientists. They can debate any more than I would want it to be left at that among the Hebrew scholars. So my brother, Tom Howe, Dr. Tom Howe at Southern Evangelical Seminary is our professor of Hebrew and Old Testament. He's actually he wrote, but he didn't write it for public consumption, so I just texted him and said, hey, can I make this available? He wrote a response to Dr. Ross's exegesis of the Genesis narrative regarding the days as a Hebrew scholar, and I know Dr. Ross knows Hebrew as well, and so I asked Tom if he would let me basically make this available, so I'm going to put it on the page, we'll call it the page, of the website. Tom Aquinas used to call Aristotle the philosopher, so I call my website the website, you know, among all the other out there. And I created a page for this conference where I put, uh, have put some material, and I'll put that up. I'll show you at the beginning of my talk how to access that. And then my apologies to you. I haven't given it to you in advance because I just found out from him this morning that I could disseminate it more or less publicly. I'll make that available, and perhaps Dr. Ross can write a response, and I'd put that on the page. And that would be, that's the kind of stuff that needs to happen. 
both among the Bible and language scholars on the one hand and the scientists on the other and such. And then you'll see where the philosopher fits into this thing when I give my talk a little bit, a little bit later on. So it's, it's a matter of just where I'm more comfortable and how I understand the Bible. And I think as a matter of principle, Dr. Ross would celebrate that, go, look, I wouldn't want you to violate your conscience. If right. you thought the Bible didn't say what Hugh Ross says it does, then go with your conscience in that regard, but be open to hear the arguments. What's the evidence and what's the arguments? And be willing to be persuaded that, okay, the weight of the evidence has convinced me that I misunderstood my Bible. I mean, after all, before the 17th century, not only all the scientists, but basically all the theologians believed that the earth was stationary with respect to the sun, and the sun was moving across the sky. And when Bellarmine wrote against Galileo and Copernicus, Bellarmine gave what I thought was a knockdown, drag out argument for the fact that the earth is still and the sun is moving. And it was his quote from the Joshua 10, when Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. And Bellarmine, in writing, he didn't have a face-to-face with Galileo, said, well, you can't command something to stand still if it's not moving. So obviously the sun is moving, so obviously the Bible teaches the sun is moving. Galileo had an interesting response that wasn't public. He wrote to the uh, Duchess Christina as to why uh, taking that literal Joshua 10 really was a problem for both Ptolemy and Copernicus on the uh, Ptolemy and Aristotle on one hand, and Copernicus and Galileo on the other. Everybody had a problem with that verse of Joshua chapter 10. Well, what did we do? It took several centuries, and it basically took the mathematicians to push it across the finish line that we did with that verse in chapter 10 of Joshua exactly what we were already doing with the verse out of chapter 2 of Joel. When Joel says that the moon will turn to blood, nobody that I know ever thought the moon was literally going to become liquid with plasma and corpuscles and, and things like that. How did they interpret the Joel 2 passage? They interpreted it as language of appearance, uh, phenomenological language, that the uh, full eclipse of the moon, the moon turns blood red. So when Joel says the moon will turn to blood, it meant it will turn red like blood. So eventually, all the Christians, except Robert Sungenis, I think is the only one that doesn't do this, took that passage then in Joshua 10 to be the language of appearance. That the sun obviously has the appearance of moving, but it's not with respect to the earth, but it's not literally moving and orbiting the earth, even though it seems to appear that way. It's just appearing to do that. So the language now uh, of appearance is how we use hermeneutically to interpret Joshua uh, chapter 10. So in other words, the principle of hermeneutics that were employed to reinterpret Joshua 10 was a principle already being employed in other scriptures. We just didn't realize, well, it needs to go here like it goes there. That principle then is sort of the boundaries under which I think we have to work to say, are there hermeneutical principles that we can comfortably come to a certain interpretation of a verse? Does the language of, of the Hebrew support a day-age theory or a framework theory or a literal 24-hour day or not? And here's the evidence, here's the argument, and then you come to a settled conclusion and don't violate your conscience. But you know, Richard, uh, I think you're pointing out a key difference between young earth creationists and old earth creationists, and that's point of view. And there's Galileo who said, you know, a big mistake you can make is get the wrong point of view. Yeah. If we're talking about a human observer on the surface of the earth, that human observer is going to move with the earth. And so all these passages that say the earth is immovable, well, that's correct if you've got the point of view of the human on the surface of the earth. But one thing I've noticed in my debates with young earth creationists, when it comes to the Genesis chapter 1, they assume that the point of view for the six creation days is God above looking down on the earth. 
Whereas from my perspective, looking at Genesis 1-2, it's God on the surface of the waters looking up at the clouds. And those two differences in point of view make a huge yeah. interpretive That's impact. Right. Yes. I mean, you get a completely different sequence of events in the six days of creation if you have the point of view above the clouds as opposed to having the point of view below the clouds. And that's something I spotted the first time I read the Bible at age mm. 17. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters of planet Earth. Job 38 adds the detail that God had blanketed the seas with clouds that kept the seas dark. Because Genesis 1-2 adds the detail, it's dark on the surface of the waters. The water covers the whole surface of the Earth. But if you're interpreting Genesis 1 from the perspective of an observer, God the observer on the surface of the earth, looking up at the clouds, you now get a perfect fit with the established scientific record for the description of the events of verse history and reverse light and the chronological order. But if you have it up above the clouds, then it's a total uh, mismatch with the established scientific record, which is why you have atheist scientists saying Genesis is scientific nonsense. It is if you get the wrong point of view. Evan, you want to add anything? Yes, I don't have any science. I'm an engineer. I just read whatever Institute for Creation Research said. So Dr. Ross probably right. But as engineers, we look at models and things that we can design, make, we can measure, and we can test those models to know if they're good or not. And if they're not good, we go back and tweak it. And I think the biggest challenge with young Earth creationism is that we see a lot of data for an old Earth, as we've already said. But is there a way that you can create a model that fits a literal six, 24-hour day and have a bunch of old data for an old Earth and universe? I think it's possible. I haven't talked to Pat about this one. So this is like a huge brainstorm session with all of you. So the idea is in calculus, we have two different options, I think. You have a step function like a staircase. You're going straight, and then you go up, and you go straight again. Or the next option is because the universe is expanding, we can treat it like a dynamic model or a dynamic system. It's expanding, it has acceleration, it has velocity. We know we can all agree it's expanding. So if I treat it as a dynamical system, we know how to model that as engineers using what's called a first order ordinary differential equation. And if you want to know what that looks like, it's kind of like a step response. It's like you have a ceiling fan, you pull it, it wants to go at the maximum speed. You have to watch and wait for a little bit. After a while, it will reach its maximum speed. So that seems to be possible. I don't know if we can maybe look at that later. Or if it's more of an impulse, that would be a second order. Ordinary differential equation, you get a huge amount of something, like the universe just warps in, kind of like in Star Wars or Star Trek, you get a spaceship that just comes out of nowhere, comes out of light speed, comes out of warp speed, just shows up instantaneously. So you get a huge amount of something in a short amount of time. You get a big impulse. So as engineers, we see these kind of models all the time. Is it possible that using that gives you an old earth because then everything looks mature? I don't know. But if you looked at Adam when he was created, you would think he's 20 or 30 years old maybe because he's a man, he's not a boy. You wouldn't assume he's just one day old or a baby because he's a mature man, he's complete. Is it possible you can copy-paste that to the, to the universe, say it's mature, complete, big? I don't know. But I think mathematically the concepts are possible. They're possible, but uh, observationally they're not possible. In the sense that you know, if God actually did that, we astronomers would be able to see the record of what he had done. So we don't see any impulse uh, coming in uh, to the uh, universe. 
But we do see, and you're raising an interesting question that was the core of young earth creationism 150 years ago. This idea that, yes, the universe looks old, but it's because God made it to look old when, in fact, it's less than 10,000 years old. And the example you gave of Adam, you know, when God created him, he was full size. But it tells us repeatedly in the Bible that it's impossible for God to lie or deceive. And, you know, the height of Adam would not be an indicator of his age, because unlike the rest of us, he didn't come from the womb of a woman. So uh, God could have made him brand new, six feet tall. And so I've argued that because of what the Bible says, that God can't lie or deceive, if a scientist, a medical scientist, was there the moment Adam was born or created by God, there'd be no gray hair. Uh, he'd have a full head of hair. What? <laughs> uh, hey, be, now that's going too far. <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be no chipped teeth, no scar tissue, and that his cholesterol level would be 60 milligrams uh, per liter, uh, not 120, because that's what happens when you age. In fact, that happens quite quickly uh, when you get into your teenage years. And we look at the universe, it's not that it all appears old. But we see and look at the universe, some bodies measure to be very young, some measure to be brand new, and others measure to be uh, thousands of years old, others measure to be millions and uh, billions of years old. We see a complete range of ages. And so, for example, we see stars that have completely consumed all their nuclear fuel, and they're white dwarfs. And a white dwarf star is like a log on a fire that's consumed its fuel. Uh, when it's consumed its fuel, it starts off a bright orange color, then it goes red, then it goes deep red, and eventually it becomes a black hole where you can actually touch it and it's completely burnt out. One reason why this debate over whether or not the universe was trillions of years old or quadrillions of years old and billions of years old is if it was quadrillions of years old, we'd see the universe filled with black dwarf stars. We don't see any black dwarf stars at all. The universe is way too young for there to be any completely burnt out stars. Lots of white dwarfs. When we look at the white dwarfs, we see that they have all different stages of cooling. Some have just started to cool, and some have been cooling for billions of years, and then we see a complete range in between. So I think that's evidence that God is not creating with the appearance of age, the fact that we're seeing a full range of ages at objects in the universe that range from zero all the way to 13.79 billion years. Yes, we're going to take this time now. James has got the roving mic. I'm sure some of you have got some questions out there for our panelists. So let's go right away. And if you got a question for one of these guys, raise your hand, and James will bring the mic to you. Are there any UFOs possibly out there or aliens? Yes, one of the uh, 23 books I've written is uh, Lights in the Sky on Little Green Men. And uh, I was an amateur astronomer before I became a professional astronomer. And that's quite rare amongst professional astronomers. So every institution I served at, they said, you get to handle the UFO reports. <laughs> so unwillingly, I wound up becoming an expert on UFOs. But what I've written in Lights in the Sky on Little Green Men, one thing we know for sure it's not beings like us coming to us from another planetary system. Why? Because that would violate the laws of physics. We're just talking. The laws of physics haven't changed. Those laws of physics are going to apply to aliens just as much as they apply to us. And when you travel through interstellar space, space is not empty. 
it's filled with particles. And if you're moving, say, at one-tenth the velocity of light, uh, E equals MC squared, you get a lot of damage on your spaceship. And so this has actually been taken into account because astronomers now want to actually send spaceships to the nearest planet outside of our solar system. That would be the planet orbiting Alpha Centauri, four and a quarter light years away. Uh, but they recognize that it's not going to be possible to send a big spaceship there because if you move it at one-tenth the velocity of light or two-tenths the velocity of light, it'll be completely destroyed by the particles. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. (laughs) 